20, we're encountering Jesus as tension builds in the temple. Turn over there, please. As I mentioned earlier, he is arriving at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the three mandatory feasts that all of Israel needed to attend. And as you attend, you would have arrived having sung pilgrimage songs. Most of those songs are grouped together in the Psalms around Psalm 120 to Psalm 133. But Psalm 118 was a very precious psalm to Israel. We've actually sung portions of it throughout our service already today in some of the hymns that we've sung. And I'll, I'll turn to it in a moment. But, but think of perhaps you going on a road trip. And as you head out on the road trip, you put a little mixtape together. Who's, that, who, who's ever done that? Sure. I, I do that all the time. Only to have everybody in the car say, oh, please. <laughs> not, not this. And it's too loud. It's too... Uh, it's like, this is great music. This is great music. As a matter of fact, I'll challenge... It. Parents, do this to any of your kids. Just take, let's say, from two years ago, 20, or, or even last year, for example, uh, or even this year. But take 2014 and take the list of 100 songs from 2014 and quiz your kids on how many of them they know from 2014. Then go back 50 years to 1964 and quiz them on the 100 songs from 1964. I guarantee you they will know more songs in the top 100 from 1964 than they will from their own time of 2014. You'll see. You'll see. But it's true. I don't know even why I'm going to that route. I got a little axe to grind, I think. But that's okay. Wait. Again, with the backdrop that we've got, is that all of the pilgrims have arrived, and fresh on their lips are these songs that they've been singing. And as I mentioned, Psalm 118 is one of their favorite road trip songs. Turn over there with me, so we'll have a bit of context before we jump in to our meat of text today. Psalm 118, very dear, not only to Israel, but it, it then became very dear to the church. Interestingly, it's sandwiched between the shortest chapter in the Bible and the longest chapter in the Bible. And if you add up all the chapters of the Bible and you look for the very middle chapter of the Bible, it's this chapter. It's coincidentally, by the way. But I want to begin... In, in Psalm 118, in the beginning for a moment, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say it. His love endures forever. And it goes on through reiterating why it is. Verse 5, when hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I won't be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He's my helper. I look in triumph at my enemies. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory 
resound in the tents of righteousness. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. This is a a psalm during Israel's time of oppression by their enemies. And through it all, they, Israel, held on tight to the fact that they had God as their king. They had God as their protector, as their shield, as their rock. And And it goes on. And again, think of just how precious it was as they were making their way, even under Roman oppression, to the temple, schlepping their sacrifices, everything else that they had as they brought their way to the temple. But all the while, light in their step with songs of hope on their lips. This song in particular. Verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. That would be the east gate that we looked at a couple weeks ago. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you, for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And for Israel singing this... In their mind, they are that stone that has been rejected. But now, because of God, Israel has triumphed and they become the great cornerstone by which an entire building is is then situated. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our own eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. 25, also known as Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. It's important to keep that in mind because everyone in the audience where Jesus is now preaching and teaching, as everybody there is hanging on his every word, as we've seen from the earlier context, and at the same time, as the religious leaders are grinding and gnashing their teeth in anger, plotting how it is that they can assassinate this guy. That's the tension in the temple right now. And as he is now just completely flipped them around with his mental jujitsu by which they thought they were going to trap him. And suddenly they are completely humiliated in front of all the people, all the religious leaders, humiliated by Jesus because he won't tell them where his authority comes from. They ought to know. And now in this parable, he makes it a bit plain, but he doesn't just make his authority plain. He also brings a message of true doom to them in the midst of this. Verse 9, let's read. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Now, if you hear vineyard and you're a Jew, you're automatically thinking, ding, 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 Isaiah 5. It, it, it just, it's just exactly what you think of if you're a Jew in this audience. Why Isaiah 5? Because in Isaiah 5, 
Israel was likened to a vineyard of God. And when God wanted to be able to tell the story of how Israel could go astray or Israel was in disrepair, but yet its walls could be built back up and it could be glorious again, he used the picture of a vineyard. So there again, here he goes, using the very uh, picture that Isaiah has used. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. If you're Israel, if you're the people, and if you're the religious leaders in particular, you're now thinking, uh-oh, what's he bringing to us now? Because he is bringing something rather intense here. Verse 12, he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'm going to send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. And by the way, if there's any question about Jesus's authority, where did he get this authority? Who sent him? What are his credentials? Well, Jesus has just made it rather plain in verse 13. This is my son whom I love. Do you remember when else that was used? At his baptism. Who baptized him? John the Baptist. Who affirmed this? God from heaven. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. As we began this study of Luke, back in Luke 3, verse 22. But when the tenants saw him, the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That last phrase, to others, would have then sent a ripple of shock through the crowd. Of what? Meaning that we're no longer God's precious possession. All of what God is trying to do through human history, through us, is now going to be removed from us and given to others. And a matter of fact, in uh, Mark and Matthew, the parallel accounts of this same parable, they make it even more clear that who he's talking about are the Gentiles. Talk about a dreaded thought that Jesus would bring in this parable. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. This is the only time Luke ever uses this strong of an exclamation. Paul uses it quite a bit in Romans. First time Luke uses it, God forbid! Because it's that repulsive an idea that Jesus has brought to them. It would be as though Jesus came here and he looked around at us and he's like, you know what? Things have become kind of stale to say the least. What used to be your passion and your pleasure in Christ has now become your duty. What was once vibrancy throughout all corners of the body of Christ has now become nothing more than an exercise in checking boxes. 
You used to produce the fruit of my vineyard in your own righteousness and in your spreading of the harvest to others to know me. And now, there's nothing of that that I can even notice. Well, Hampton Roads Church, I'm about to take the church from you. And you will all be removed and it will be given to someone else. That's how they heard this. Right, sobering to say the least. That's the intensity of what Jesus is bringing. And it's not just hypothetical because it's exactly what happens. And it happens that generation. By 70 AD, all of this is completely fulfilled. And he'll explain it later in this same discussion as we make our way into verse 21, chapter 21, exactly how all of this is going to happen in 70 AD, but in their generation. Well, they exclaim, God forbid! And then Jesus looks directly at them and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And if you're asking them after they just sang this song, after they just traveled for many days, all the way on up. I mean, think about like when someone, how many of y'all went to uh, San Antonio to the big conference that, that we had, right? So you arrive in San Antonio, you survived with all of your kids screaming in the car, we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there yet. You know, trying to eat peanut butter sandwiches along the way to save a dime, and then you arrive and... And, and, and you're, you're there and you're giving your heart and you're going to conferences and all. And, and, and then at that moment, after having arrived, being, being told, you know what? I'm taking this thing away from you. You, you've, you have really paled in comparison to what I thought would really be the case for the body of Christ. Right? Now, you drive into San Antonio. We drove to San Antonio. It was 25 hours straight without stopping. It was quite pleasant. But we were doing it in an air-conditioned car. There were probably movies playing in the back seat the entire time. Whatever it was that we did was nothing to what it was to throw a one-year-old lamb over your shoulder and walk through hill country and then to finish it in, in, at the top of hill country, go, going up another 3,000 feet of elevation at the very end to be able to make that trek. And it, it's, it's that kind of pilgrimage that they now are hearing this. And, then, and they've been singing this song. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Are they not thinking to themselves? Well, I know what it means. It means that, yeah, even though we're having hard times and things are not good, but eventually... God is going to renew and refresh us. It's all going to be good. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what it means. And you've had your chances. And what it means now is this. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Either scenario is bad. Either you're broken up beyond recognition or you are crushed flat. As a matter of fact, they would have all understood because there was, in, in, uh, in, in some of the Deuterocanonical books, there is one in, in a phrase that they would have known rather well, this audience. 
It's, and, and listen to it. It sounds familiar to this. If the stone falls on the pot, too bad for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, too bad for the pot. <laughs> it actually says alas, but I don't know what you think. Like, alas, alas, it's alas. Right? But, but either way, whether you come smack down on the, on, the, on the cornerstone or the cornerstone comes smack down on you, either way, that's it. You're done for. It's destruction. That's what Jesus is getting across here. Oh, that stone, by the way, Jesus, it's no longer Israel. That stone is the Messiah. There's the Messiah for whom you hoped. And because you no longer aligned yourself with the Messiah, that stone will now crush you. Nothing but sobriety at this moment. The teachers of the law, verse 19, and the chief priests looked, away, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. And just one more moment here on the parable. The parable speaks of a vineyard, an owner, some farmers who rent it, some servants who come to come get the harvest, and ultimately a son. So what, what is the vineyard? The, the vineyard is not necessarily Israel, but it's actually the blessings that God has available for his people. Whether those people be the body of Christ or whether those people be Israel. The vineyard is the fruitfulness of living in alignment with the word of God. It is the harvest of righteousness. And who are the, the, the farmers here that are renting it out? It's Israel. It's Israel in particular, the leaders, the religious leaders that Jesus has in view. And as these religious leaders are now guiding Israel into living in alignment with the blessings of God, or in living in alignment in order to produce the blessings of God, they are not in fact doing that. And, and rather than living in alignment with righteousness and holiness and wonder that goes with being the people of God, there is then not much of a harvest. And who is it that comes to try to encourage them to harvest? The servants? The prophets. And in a sense, this parable is an interesting one because it is Jesus, in parabolic form, telling the history of Israel. And here he recounts all of the history of Israel, and ultimately, after prophet after prophet after prophet, coming to bring the wake-up call, coming to say... This is your 7 a.m. wake-up call. Time for a little fruit. Time for a little harvest. Time for a little righteousness. But yet, again and again, they rejected and hardened their hearts to the intervening, loving work of God. And what ultimately happens? Then God says, well, maybe somebody with better credentials should show up. Maybe they'll respect someone who's not just simply a prophet, but now... My very son whom I love. And then, of course, we, we see that played out in the end with, with Jesus. And for, for us, this is an important principle, I think, that we use. Is, is to recognize this is not just about Jews. It's about religious people. This is not about kind of old-time traditional Christian religion. 
if we keep putting it over there, we'll never have our hearts softened by the word of God. Who, more than us, can fall victim to being religious folk that can lose their way. We're awesome at doing religious things. I don't mean that in a negative sense, like religion means bad. Religion as a term itself doesn't necessarily mean bad. But when we become kind of pharisaical or self-righteous or self-dependent or self-involved in our religion, then we go the way of the religious leaders as we see them in view right here. As Jesus is confronting them, as they're like looking around of how do we kill this guy? That's how much they didn't want to hear from Jesus. Because what had become comfortable to them is now being disrupted in the deepest way by Jesus. And in the end, Jesus is like, you've had chances after, you've got a patient and tenacious God who has sent you loving intervention time and time again. And what have you done but shown him the door? I didn't like the way you said that to me. Maybe you could have put it differently. Maybe if you had a bedside manner. Maybe if you built me up for seven, eight sessions first before you shared this with me. But now Jesus says, it's done. No, but wait, no, what? It's done. The kingdom is being taken away from you. And it's going to be given to others. As religious leaders, as people who can do religion rather well, let this be a convicting disruption for us today. Title of my sermon. Should I pull it up? Simply this. God forbid. God forbid that the cornerstone crushes us. God forbid that we would ever look back. Maybe even our kids looking back and saying, wow, where did we go wrong? That we were no longer the body of Christ. And that God needed to get a new plan. And really, what... What today needs to be for us is our determination as the people of God to crush proof ourselves for the glory of God. And not for our own self-preservation, but so that we truly are living this beautiful life of living in alignment with the very will of God. This parable could have been so different for these people if they had simply listened, realigned, repented, and lived in alignment with the will of God. How different it would all be, how glorious it would be season after season, harvest after harvest. And that's exactly who we want to be. But my goodness, how frightening would it be? But it's it's not as though it hasn't happened in Christianity. North Africa... That whole stretch from Alexandria over to Carthage, North Africa, that was the hotbed center of radical Christianity. Amazing place. And yet, today, it's all Muslim ground. Hardly a power center of Christianity to be found all throughout. Look at the landscape of Europe. Cathedral after cathedral. 
Being built for the glory of God, ascending into the, into the heavens, exalting Him, even through the architecture itself. Aligning themselves with the anticipated return of Christ as they enter into these great cathedrals. And now, they're tourism sites. Where the work of God happens no more. We have no guarantee that we will forever be with the candle stand, as, as referenced in Revelation 2. That we will be God's special possession. But only if we simply keep ourselves in alignment with God. Now as we do, it's all great. And it's only ever increasing glory and victory after victory and astonishment after astonishment by which we live our lives. It's video after video where we are like, yes, look at that, what God has done among us. But here's what happens in every single movement of God. Is that in the first generation, with the zeal that even these leaders may have had, they become old and crusty and try to hold on to power. And suddenly the younger people model themselves and disciple themselves after the old and crusty. And the best they ever get is not the high priest when he was 27 going for it and bringing righteousness to all corners of the nation of Israel. But they get the stodgy old high priest who's, you know, too too busy making sure that his turban and his Irma and Thuman are, are all shined up looking nice. And he's become majored in minors and administrative and there's no longer the edge. And then that generation grows up and that was the ceiling of radical righteousness that they ever knew. And think about what then they produce for the next generation and the next and the next. And it ebbs away as quick as that. And even for us, as we look at the next generation here, the older generation here, hopefully radical edge going right now here, that this is not about, all right, hey, you know what? You know, don't, don't look at us now. Uh, let us tell you stories about glory days and then follow what we used to do then. Right? That is, not, that is not the solution to all of this. The solution to all of this is for every one of us in community to really re-establish in our lives Jesus. Jesus to the full. Jesus unfiltered. To, to no longer be weighed down by the older responsibilities that might be ours. To recognize them, not to shirk them, of course, but to never lose sight that we live for the kingdom of God. Otherwise, this ebbing will occur generation after generation. And we right now are defining Christianity for our kids. How do you want to define it? What is it that you want to leave for them as a legacy? How do you want to launch them on the trajectory of their life in Jesus Christ? Let it be that it's always greater than our own. And by the way, as you all continue to get after Jesus, and you see us becoming ridiculous and sluggish, well then you know what? Bring it. Call us out. Mom, Dad, what are we doing? This is the fourth night in a row that we're just sitting around watching TV. Isn't that something more that we should be doing as a Christian family right now? 
Mom, Dad, when was the last time we had like anybody into our home to help kind of reach out and show them Jesus Christ? Mom, Dad, how about like, you know, time of like prayer as a family? Mom, Dad, how about just bring it? You fought it. You know you fought it. But you know what you did instead? Yeah, they know what they're doing. And who am I to speak anyway? Because I didn't make my bed. We, decrepit folks over here, need you. We need you to have a wild-eyed faith to help us remember what it was that we really always wanted to do anyway. And at the same time for all of us, we need to get back and making sure that we're defining Christianity on biblical terms. And that we scare our kids into what it looks like to live for Jesus Christ. But I've got three practicals from, from this passage that I want to look at and close with here of how it is that we can make sure that it really is forbidden and that never will it be that we are no longer the body of Christ. Number one, walk with anticipation. Conduct your life always in hopeful anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. In the parable, it seems as though the long time coming for the master seemed to get people's eyes off of things above and on things below. We need every day to lift our mind to things above rather than things below. To realize that we're not here to make heaven on earth. We're here to live for the new age to come. For the kingdom. That will be revealed in its full consummation at the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. The master's coming back. And in this case, it's the son. And when he comes back, that's what's going to be what we all did all of this for. Is to then join in celebration with Jesus. We need to make sure that every day we walk with that anticipation. And, and if we're not lifting our eyes to things above rather than things below... It may be that we're starting our day without the Bible. God forbid. God forbid that we would get into a habit where, yeah, maybe I ought to read my Bible. I don't know. I, you know what? There's so much I need to do today. Plus, a lot of it I'm doing for other Christians, so that kind of counts, right? No. We need the words of the Holy Spirit to lift our sights on things above rather than on things below. If we want to, again, this is a sober time today, so, you know, if there was a laugh, that was it. Sorry. And that one. For two of you. Four. Uh, hey! Let's talk in our next times with disciples, with one another, whether we really are in our Bibles. Whether we really are having prayer time, whether we really are setting our mind on things above, whether we really are living in anticipation of what the gospel is all about, or whether we're just kind of trudging through, just trying to do righteousness on our own steam, trying to do church in our own efforts. That very much defines what Israel was doing when Jesus came into the temple. Be frightened, be sobered, have the wake up call right now, but it's okay because in doing so, we, we realign ourselves with the will of God. 
Secondly, work the harvest. In Matthew and Mark, he says, you know what he's going to do? He's going to come. He's going to kill those old farmers, those old tenants, and he's going to give the vineyard to others who will produce its fruit. What does God want from us? Why are we uh, the body of Christ? Why are we still here? Why, why aren't we in heaven already? Yeah, we just, sometimes we think, well, if, if, if I were in heaven, then I'd really be able to love God better. You would. And if we were in heaven, we'd be able to sing better. I would. <laughs> and if we were in heaven, we'd have a deeper devotion and a, and a keener communion. All of that would be the case. There's only one reason, or not only one, but there's one chief thing that we can do here that we can't do in heaven. And that is to work the harvest for Jesus. That is the one thing that we can do. And it's probably out of God's loving patience that He's kept us here. It's because He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So let's work the harvest. And I think, think back, when was the last time that you really said, you know what? I've been redeemed by God. I'm part of the body of Christ. We have a purpose here in the body of Christ to go and make disciples. And yes, we have a purpose to love God. Yes, we have a purpose to, to, to worship God. Yes, those are all. But again, all of those purposes would be better established and executed in heaven. No doubt. The one that's not is the one why we're still here. And that is to please beg and beseech everyone to come and know Jesus. And to realize that we're plan A. There is no plan B. There is no cavalry coming over the hill. We are it. We're the solution. And of course, when that wasn't the solution, Jesus isn't going to just be like, well, it's not a good solution for Israel. You're not, you're not really bringing it. You're not bringing the gospel. Or you're not bringing the good news. So, I don't know. I guess I'll just be okay with that. No, it's too important. And for us to bring the harvest, it's too important. So much so that God will even switch up who's going to be his precious possession. Let's not even like have a concern of that. Let it, let it only be that we're just so excited day after day that yes, we get to bring the harvest. We get to know Jesus and we get to change other lives. We get to see families transformed. We get to change generational issues where families now blossom in peace and purpose and passion in Jesus. Amen. Work the harvest. This is not like, well, what? It means, that means we actually do something about this. That we actually stop and ask people about Jesus. And even now, I think, think through who are some people that you can disrupt and ask them about Jesus. This is not kind of rubber meets the sky that Jesus wants here. This is rubber meets the road. I'm going to give it to others who will produce its fruit. Now, again, I know the fruit means also the righteousness of our lives, but it also means the expansion of the harvest to those that need to know Christ. And then finally, welcome a prophet, or two, or three, or whatever it is that you require personally. In other words, God sent a prophet, a second, and he sent still a third. To Israel. Why? To open their eyes, to shake them by the lapel, and give them a wake up call, 
and say, you've gone astray, you've become dull, you've become anemic, you've lost sight of what it is to be in alignment with the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, let's get back on track. And rather than be quite grateful for the intervening work of those prophets, as I mentioned earlier, instead, they're like, eh, meh. And at best, was that, at worst, it was like, how dare you? You come in here in my house and you tell me that I'm not living like Jesus Christ? Get out of here right now. I mean, who knows what, what, what the, the, the extent of it was there for Israel. But for us, we're too smooth to do that, even though we're thinking it in our hearts. Like, wait a minute. You're going to tell me about parenting my children? My, where do you get uh, my children? I don't think that somebody is coming into my house to run roughshod over me and humiliate me in front of my wife and kids. Nor do they do it that way. Only in my mind I think it that way. But what do they want? They want nothing but the best for my kids. We're, we're in the body of Christ. We're meant to spur one another on. We're meant to encourage one another. And really for most of us, if we've gotten off track of what it is to really be the body of Christ, what it is to produce the fruit, what it is to be the faithful tenants, working with joy for the harvest of Christ, then we need a prophet or two or three that come into our lives. Why not invite it? Why not even today invite it into your life and say, you know what? I've become dull. I need a prophet. Let's grab a cup of coffee. And you can slap me upside the head with this two by four a few times. <laughs> I know that in the past, you've tried to do it. And I've had the talk to the hand approach to that. But I'm a new man. And I'm ready. I'm ready to receive what it is you need to bring me to help me get realigned with life in Christ. If Israel had just simply done that. All change. I mean, how amazing is God over and over again throughout the scriptures? Where you think, oh, for sure. I mean, he has is, he is got the lightning bolt ready. Just wipe it out. I cannot believe they've done that. They're killing their own kids. They're making child sacrifices. They're setting up disgusting sexual images in the temple. Oh, God's going to bring it. But then even then, they repent. And God's like, oh, I forgive you. What? Come on, God. Well, how much more us? Right? I mean, why are all those there? To give you encouragement to know that no matter where we're at, no matter what it is from which we need to repent, God's waiting with open, loving arms. I cannot wait to bless you. I cannot wait to put you back in the vineyard of blessing and your whole life to be fruitful and righteousness and peace to abound. It's what He wants. He wants for every one of us. Invite the prophet. And then finally, even though those were practicals, the one last thing to crush-proof our church is to build. Build with that cornerstone. We are the living stones. Just always have a mindset. Wherever you are, how am I building the church? What am I doing to build God's kingdom? What am I doing to build up the body of Christ? Am I creating more ligaments and sinews? Who am I encouraging? Who have I built up? Who can I help to inspire to church greater leadership? Who have I extended the kingdom to? But every day, don't let a day go by without the mentality that I'm not just going to take up space, but I am going to build. Amen. Thank you.